Good morning, church. This is a good day. We are together with Christ this morning, and we have already seen two visible sermons. Two sermons have been preached already today with what we have done. Our visible worship together is so important for so many reasons. But as we do this and celebrate Jesus, we are alerting the world, both the visible and invisible parts of the world, to the continued reign of Jesus. When we worship visibly, we alert all that God created to who Jesus is. We are here because of him and because of what he did in us. Each one of us entered this room this morning with our own unique desires, right? Our own unique expectations about what will this Sunday be. We have challenges and we have joys and we have stresses that don't vaporize when we walk in the room to worship. Wherever you are coming from this morning, my hope and my prayer for you is that as we are gathered and as we worship, that you would personally encounter our living Jesus, that you would experience his healing and his love and his care through the visible sermons, through this auditory sermon, that you would experience him with your brothers and sisters. As we move now into hearing from God in his word, I want to pray that God would shine brightly his light into our hearts, that we would really experience him and hear from him this morning. Let's pray. Father, we know that you are present by your Holy Spirit who dwells deep within our hearts and who fills this room. We pray that by your mighty spirit that you would shine your light into our hearts as we open your word to hear from you. Would you heal our hearts? Would you mend them? Would you strengthen them and encourage them? And Lord, would you fill us with joy as we look at your word together this morning? We pray for our friends and brothers and sisters who are not able to be here this morning Lord, they're ill or they're at work. They have other things going on. We pray that you would meet them in those places right now. We pray for our brothers and sisters who are worshiping with us remotely because they aren't able to be here. Lord, would you be with them in their place right now and fill their hearts. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, church, it's great to get to be with you again this morning. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Jeff and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we're glad you're here to worship with us. This morning, we're going to continue to look at God's work among a young and diverse church in the capital city of the, the region of Macedonia in the Roman Empire, the city of Thessalonica. This is happening roughly in the middle of the first century. So if you have your Bibles, you could turn. We're going to look today at First and Second Thessalonians and continue from last week. First and Second Thessalonians. You could just turn to First for now. Remember my tip last week about how to find that? So there are a few books in the New Testament that all start with T. They're all short books. If you find one of those books and it's not Thessalonians, you've gone too far. Thessalonians is the first one. So if you turn to 1 Thessalonians, if you need a Bible, they're in the corners of the room and we'd love for you to grab one to be able to have it open with you this morning. And again, as always, we want to remind you if you don't have a readable Bible at home 
We'd love it if you took one with you so that you could connect with Jesus through his word throughout the week. Last week, we looked at Acts 17. We read about this historic account of Paul and Silas in Thessalonica, proclaiming Jesus as the Christ, the suffering and risen Christ, and then the subsequent chaos of a mob that was hunting for them and searching for them. As Paul proclaimed Jesus Christ to them, he experienced this storm of opposition from multiple sides. There was opposition from the Jewish people and the Jewish leaders that was theological and religious. And then there was opposition from the Thessalonian city rulers that was civic or political in nature against them. These were the accusations, remember, from last week that were brought before the authorities. They said this, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. So that was one of them. And then added to that charge was the charge of sedition, of direct rebellion against Caesar, the emperor himself. They were saying that there was another king, Jesus. These were serious charges that were brought against them. And both sets of charges had a deeper meaning to them and in which they were true. As the gospel of Jesus and his kingdom was proclaimed, the world indeed was being turned upside down, although Paul and us would have said it's being turned right side up, actually. It's already upside down. Jesus was working through the Holy Spirit and people were being redeemed and made into new creations in him in which the old ways passed away and the new ways came. And the other charge about Jesus being king, yeah, that was really deeply true, way more than they understood. Jesus is king of the whole world, of all of creation, and one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and presumably that includes emperors and Caesars too. So in the midst of that mayhem and the sedition, Paul and Silas were forced to flee Thessalonica. They could not remain there. But the really neat thing is, is their ministry to the Thessalonian people did not end when they left. Paul sent Timothy to check on them. He was worried about them, he loved them, and he was concerned, and Timothy went back into the city and then reported back to Paul what he had seen and heard. If you're in 1 Thessalonians, look at chapter 3, starting in verse 5, for an example of what Paul recorded for us about this exchange. 1 Thess 3, 5, and 6, it says, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us, as we long to see you. It's remarkable to me that all of these details are recorded for us in the Word, both the historic details that we read about last week in Acts 17, but then Paul's letters and his personal exchange and relational exchange with these people that we see in First and Second Thessalonians. It gives us really unique insight into how God was working then. Remember, this letter, 1 Thessalonians, would have been written most likely within weeks of that riot that happened. So this is all coming pretty quickly. And then most scholars think that the 2 Thessalonian letter would have been written probably only within weeks of that first letter. So not a lot of time went by between these letters that Paul was writing to them. Within an intense 
climate of opposition in Thessalonica, God raised up new sons and daughters, redeemed ones, as we've been celebrating all morning in our midst as well. These new apprentices of Jesus heard the gospel of the suffering and risen Christ as preached by Paul, and they were convinced to the heart that it was true. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. This will be on the screen too. 1 Thess 2, 13, it says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. They had eyes to see and ears to hear God's word as God's word. And their lives were forever changed by that, what they heard. The message of the gospel that we believe and we've been proclaiming all morning with what we've been doing here did not come from the mind of any human being, but finds its source in the triune living God who reigns over all things. So in these letters, First and Second Thessalonians, Paul addresses several really important truths. He brings some correction to this young church and clarification where it is needed, and he just continues to nurture this new and young faith that they had in Christ. This morning, I want to boil this down, all these particulars that are in these, these letters, and I would encourage you to take some time to read them this week. They're amazing. I want to boil it down, though, to two themes, two overarching themes that emerge and they overlap throughout these letters, and it connects all these particulars that Paul addresses. And these two themes are directly relevant for our life today, right now, the way we're living and the things we're encountering they, they can be captured, I think, most clearly in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. So if you turn over to chapter 1, we're going to read verses 9 and 10. Everything else that we talk about this morning is going to emerge out of these two themes that you can see in these verses. It says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So the first overarching theme this morning is that following Christ leads to a new faithful allegiance to him, a new loyalty and devotion to him and his ways that goes above any other thing in our lives. For them... That allegiance meant that their way of life was totally flipped right side up as they followed Jesus. As they believed this God-breathed gospel, their lives would never be the same again. You can see this allegiance to Christ when Paul says, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. They turned away from what was not living and what was not true towards the true God who is alive and present and powerful. You may remember last week that many of the Thessalonians would have worshipped at various temples in their city. Temples like to Zeus or Apollos or Aphrodite or Hercules or maybe even that really important temple to the emperor. Their turning from those idols to the living God was massive. It was really countercultural and an important step. Because the worship of those gods, those idols, was the cultural norm. 
and to worship one God was considered by most completely illogical and probably treasonous. This was no small step. This was no small thing turning away from and turning towards the living God. They were now following the Lord Jesus Christ, and as Christ was enthroned in their hearts, all other competing gods, God competitors, had to be dethroned from their hearts. Listen to Psalm 115, how it describes idols and what idols are. Psalm 115, 4 to 8. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Completely powerless. Unable to do anything. Here's the thing, though. Even though those idols, those gods, had no power within themselves to act, none. They had no power to intervene. They had no power to provide for people. They were given power. These gods were given power by each human heart who willingly chose to serve them and willingly chose to be devoted to them and live according to the ways of that specific idol. The idol or the quality or attribute that that specific idol represents has absolutely no power in itself. But it is given power by human hearts. And then once given power, those gods rule over them. They have influence and control over that human life. In in Thessalonica, many people likely chose their personal family idols or family gods in accordance with their own desires, in accordance with their own aspirations. It was transactional. They gave worship to an idol who could potentially give them what they wanted. Love, power, money, success. It wasn't because the idol had reached out to them in love. No, not at all. The fact that the idol was completely powerless to help them was just a major part of how it was upside down as they followed them. These idols were devoted to and worshipped and energy went into maintaining their temples, but they had no power once they were served to serve. They had no power to bring comfort or care or help that people need in their lives. None at all. They are incapable. All of our lives are built around whatever our heart truly worships. All of our lives are built around whatever our heart truly worships. And this happens in some obvious ways and then some subtle ways. And the obvious way is if someone actually goes to a physical temple and worships a god. That would involve time and money and energy to get to that temple, right? And maybe an offering given. You may have done that. You may have had friends in your life who have done that. I've had friends who upon purchasing a car needed to go to the temple to make sure that the car would last long and be dependable. It was important to get to the temple so that God could bless the car. And I've had other friends who, having had a baby, 
named the baby according to astrological rules and then needed to get to the temple so that the child would have a healthy life going forward. That's the kind of control and power and authority that gods are given. And that's how it's transactional. I do this for you, I come to your temple, you do this for me. You take care of my car and you bless my child. That's the more obvious form of idolatry. But then there's this more subtle form of idolatry that each and every one of us deals with. All of us do. We may not go to a physical temple and worship a god named Zeus, but we don't need a temple like that or a name for a god for our hearts to worship things like a god. We don't need the strappings and the pomp and circumstance to create a God of our own choosing, a God, to remember, that is powerless on itself, but then we give that God power over us. That is the more subtle sort of idolatry that we all struggle with. Wherever and in whatever we seek relief from, in, or refuge in, that is what we worship. So think about where do you go for relief? Where do you go for refuge? When the heat and the stress in life is rising and we feel it, where do we seek help from? Anything that isn't the triune living God ends up being an idol. Some of these things are just concepts or ideas like self-sufficiency, control, relationships or power, money, influence, success, leisure, our physical attractiveness. Any one of those things could be a functional idol that our hearts bow down to and give power to over us. When one of our functional idols is threatened, we feel anxious and fearful and angry. For example, if money has the place in our life and it's risen to the place of being a God for us that we are worshiping. Whenever something goes wrong with money or threatens money or our stuff, or maybe the stock market, our souls become agitated at a deep level. The Thessalonian followers of Christ had turned away from powerless idols, both the named ones and the unnamed ones, to serve the living and true God. That meant that they were increasingly becoming people whose hearts went after that which pleased God. They were learning a whole new way of being and then a whole new way of living that wasn't transactional, just trying to get what they wanted and please an idol, but responding to the God who loved them first and sent his son to die for them. Throughout the letters, both First and Second Thessalonians, Paul reminds them of this. You can look in chapter 4, 1 Thess 4.1, for example. It says, Finally then, brothers and sisters... We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. This call to live lives that are pleasing to God is closely related to turning away from idols, from false gods, because we become like what we worship. We're formed and shaped by whatever captures our hearts. The way we live in our normal, everyday lives is directly connected to whatever it is that we have enthroned in our heart and worshipped. So as the Thessalonians' hearts moved away from idols and powerless gods, 
their lives were increasingly lived in a way that was pleasing to God, in a way that reflected God's love for them and their devotion to him. Not to earn anything, not to convince God to love them or bless them, but in response to God's love. And to trust that what would be pleasing to God would bring peace and joy in their lives as well. All of our responses, both our internal responses and our external responses in life, reflect our heart posture and our connection with Jesus. Every time we act and live, it is a reflection of our connection with Jesus. Sometimes in life, we can feel like our circumstances are the cause of our actions and our reactions. What is going on around me is causing me to do this thing. But our circumstances are never the direct cause of how we live in the world. They are never the cause. What is going on around us does not determine our actions or our reactions. It's not that our circumstances are insignificant. They are. Sherry shared some earlier. Those are significant circumstances. But it is in our heart and from within that our living comes from. It is our connection with Jesus that determines how we live in those circumstances. Our living, our normal everyday lives, tells the story of what our hearts truly love and worship. Another way of thinking about this is to think of your life and who you are in terms of vertical and horizontal aspects of your being. Try to do this quickly here. The vertical dimension of your life is how you relate to whatever it is that you worship. So God, or maybe some sort of um, functional idol, That includes what you believe about God, how you experience Him in your daily life, how you interact with Him and communicate with Him, how you receive from Him what you need, and so on. That's all vertical. And then you have this horizontal aspect of your life, and that is how you relate with everyone else and everything else in the world. That's this horizontal dimension of your life. It's how you treat those that you know really well and that live near you, and how you treat those who you don't know well and you just run into when you're getting groceries. That horizontal dimension is both internal thoughts and external actions in the world around you. Whatever we do in that horizontal plane of our life is directly connected to the vertical aspect of our life and what we worship. Try to illustrate this here. Has anyone ever seen the show Alone before? Okay. Alone is an outdoor survival show, and it starts out with 10 people. And they go out into a vast, dangerous wilderness all by themselves, so the 10 are separated. The goal is to be the last one on the show. They go into this wilderness, and they see how long can they last. They record their own lives with video cameras. They build shelters, they hunt, they fish, they deal with bears and mountain lions. And as you can imagine, One of the most challenging aspects of just living on your own in the wilderness for months and months is finding food, getting enough to eat, to survive, and flourish. As as I've watched that show, I have found it fascinating both from this human survival aspect and our need for other people, because over and over again they find we are not made to live alone. We are made to be with other people. But also it reveals over and over again this vertical aspect of our life that I was just describing, this worship aspect. For example, when one of them makes a fishing pole, they're all rudimentary, like just a stick with a string on it, and they finally catch a fish, 
sometimes after trying for days and not eating for days, do you know what they do? They almost universally respond, thank you. Thank you. I don't think that all of them are necessarily saying that to Jesus, to who we're talking about this morning, but it is evident that in that moment of desperate need and then receiving what they need, they spontaneously erupt in thank you. It happens over and over and over again. When things go wrong, when the fishing pole breaks, they don't catch the fish, it's a different story how they respond. Their lives tell the story of what it is that they worship. That thankful to God, that spontaneous thankful to God response is at least part of what Paul intended for these Thessalonian believers to be experiencing as they lived lives that were pleasing to God. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 5, 16 to 18. These are really dense, short verses here. Very radical, different way of life. It says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Being able to give thanks in all circumstances, even when things don't go well, is not normal. Giving thanks when things do go well is very normal, as illustrated by that TV show. But giving thanks when things aren't going how we want, that's the mark of a human life that is lived not just with the ordinary human capacities, but with God's powerful spirit. It reflects a deep vertical trust in God and his constant care that even in the midst of challenges and a lot of heat in life, a heart can be thankful because his spirit is is within that heart. I want to quickly highlight just a few other ways that Paul writes to them and describes how their life could be more pleasing to God and how they could please him. Throughout these letters, Paul writes over and over again that they are to love one another. The way that they treated each other was of really high importance for that community and for those who were looking in on that community. He made sure to make it clear that they already were loving each other. He knew they already were, but he wanted them to do that more and more. Listen to how he did this. This is in 2 Thessalonians 1.3. This is also, quickly before I read it, this is also a great example of how Paul was hearing after he wrote the first letter that they grew that they were being transformed by Jesus. Listen to what he said, 2 Thess 1.3. We have to always give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. They cared for each other. That was pleasing to God. In addition to love for one another, he called them to live lives of self-control and bodily purity. Their bodies and sexuality were gifts from God that were meant to honor him, just like everything else in their life. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that topic this morning, but that does not mean that I think it's unimportant. It's unbelievably important then and now, what we do with our bodies. And if that's an area that you know you need help with this morning, I want to encourage you to talk to another follower of Jesus 
and link arms and get help in it. We are not meant to walk alone in these things as we follow Jesus. Finally, Paul twice calls them to the triad of faith, hope, and love. If you look at 1 Thessalonians 5.8 for an example of one of these. 1 Thess 5.8 says, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. These three virtues were to increasingly characterize their lives because they were no longer people of the dark, of the night. They were people of the light. They had turned away from those old ways and they were now full of God's Spirit and that Spirit was sanctifying them. The Holy Spirit was transforming them to look more and more like Jesus. None of this was possible except by increasing dependence upon Him. Independence and dependence. Independence and dependence. Those are very important distinctions for us as we follow Jesus. As human beings, we've grown accustomed to living life in the weakness of our own effort. We have grown accustomed to living life in the weakness of our own effort, of what we are able to muster up. It's the weakness of independence from God. A life where we have only ourselves to rely upon and only our own natural human resources to draw upon. It's a life in which we try to control our circumstances and then we set our hearts on idols that might help us get through our difficult circumstances, deliver us in some way. But we must now learn how to live again, relearn how to live not in weakness, but in strength. A strength that is built upon constant and continual dependence upon God. That is what human life looks like when it is turned right side up. It is what human beings were made for and it is how we will flourish. A life of constant connection and dependence upon Jesus. The Thessalonian circumstances are not ones they would have chosen. They were suffering and afflicted, yet they responded to it by pressing into Christ and his kingdom. They were steadfast in him despite the challenge. And that brings me to the second overarching theme. I talked about this at length last week, so I'm just going to touch on it this morning. But throughout both of these letters, First and Second Thessalonians, Paul again and again reminds them that Christ, their king, will return. He will come back. In the meantime, they were to continue to live with hope, with joyful anticipation as they waited for the return of their king who was alive. When King Jesus would return, he would bring to completion the redemption that they were already tasting and experiencing, the renewal that was theirs in him through his life and his death and his resurrection. When he returns, he will set all things right. All of those things that bring tears to our eyes. And this joyful anticipation of his return overlaps with that first theme, that A life of following Jesus is a life of faithful allegiance to him, where our heart's loyalty is to him and where he is enthroned in all that we do. We get to live right now in his power, 
in his kingdom and in his life, even as we anticipate his return. Some of you in this room are navigating unbelievably challenging life circumstances right now. You are heartbroken. I feel like you don't know what to do next. I've talked with some of you this week about your specific circumstances, and I have to say, I've been blown away by two things. One, I've been amazed again with how upside down the world truly is right now. Things are not as they are ought to be. They're broken. And you are walking through truly dark and broken things. Circumstances that would crush the human soul that is living independently of God's spirit. But church, here's the second thing that has blown me away. Your soul has not been crushed by that weight of these uninvited intrusions. Your soul has not been crushed. Even as you weep at these things, you are holding firm. You are steadfast because God has worked in you a new kind of strength, the strength of dependence upon him. Even when the heat gets intense and the pressure builds. My encouraging to you this morning is this. You are depending upon him. You are trusting him. You are obeying him, even through the darkest valleys. Continue to do so more and more. Place the full weight of this burdensome season that you're in upon Christ. He can bear it. He is king of the whole world. His power is made perfect in our weakness. He is attracted to our need for his help. He is our good shepherd and we are his sheep. He knows what we need before we ask him. Let's ask him together for strength and dependence upon him. Let's pray, church. Lord, you know far better than I do where we need you. Which human hearts this morning are desperate for your intervention in their lives? And we pray as a church family for your mercy, for each one who is suffering, for each one who is afflicted, for each one who is in hot, intense circumstances right now. Lord, would you bring relief? And Lord, we pray even more than about circumstances. We pray for each one of our hearts. Whatever this day and the next day and the next day, whatever you have for us, God, I pray that you would give each one of us the strength of living in constant dependence upon you. Would you please continue to fill us with your spirit and sanctify us? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.